Well, hello. Yes, it's Phil Ryan. And yes, it's the Story Hive podcast of today. And this podcast, which you may be listening to on, I don't know, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, I don't know where. But wherever you're listening to it, please share it with your friends and family, because I think they'll get quite a lot of fun out of listening too. As you know, it's a three-story selection, as always. And I'm going to kick off with the very... It's a bit more complicated, this one, so bear with me. It's actually called Uncle Phil's Slightly Altered Fairy Stories. So it's a bit of a cheat, because it's like lots of little stories inside stories. So you can listen for a bit and pause it and then listen again. It's not terribly long, by the way, but it's worth noting there's going to be lots of little stories coming your way. And another warning. Some of them are a bit kind of rude, but anyway, they're kind of laugh out loud, silly rude, so it's not. Ugh. So anyway, happy listening. The Elves and the Shoemaker. Now, once upon a time, an old shoemaker lived in a tiny cottage on the edge of a sleepy town, and business was pretty good. In fact, it was so good, the old geezer was being worn to a frazzle, with jobs piling up left, right and centre. Now, whether you believe it or not, some tiny elves lived in a hole in his skirting board on account of the viciously high interest rate on elvish mortgages. And each evening the elves often watched the old shoemaker working long into the night, mending his great pile of shoes. And eventually they all developed a massive guilt complex. Until Reg, the head elf, decided that the very next night, that as soon as the old shoemaker crawled exhaustedly to his bed, that all the elves would zoom out the skirting board and mend all the shoes. And so it was. And from that day, the kindly elves mended all the shoes. And to Reg and the elves' delight, the old shoemaker grew happier and happier. And as time passed, the elves noticed that more and more shoes were being left out to be mended. And after a bit of investigation, they found out the old shoemaker had opened up, in fact, ten more shops across the sleepy little town and surrounding area. He'd also invested into satellite broadcasting in a big way and was about to marry an 18-year-old fashion model, Desiree, he'd met in a casino. And so that night, Reg the head elf confronted the old man, who then threatened them all with two years back rent unless they kept working. And like a fool, Reg and the elves all agreed. And the moral of our story, if you offer people help for nothing, don't be surprised when you get screwed. Well, wasn't that nice? And now to our next story. And it is Jack and the Beanstalk. Once upon a time, a boy named Jack lived with his mother in a right old dump on the outskirts of a little town. And they were very poor, and obviously none too clever, as they were constantly starving. But things went from bad to worse, until one day Jack's mother sent him to market to sell off their cow for a few quid, so she could pay off her huge credit card bills. Now at the back of her head, she had felt a nagging doubt that she made a mistake sending him, but it was a relief to get rid of the idiot for a while, but then 
Sure enough, when he returned, he'd been swindled, and she immediately punched him in the face. But mother, he gasped, fighting for breath, I have got three magic beans, and they're going to make our fortune. And quite properly, she hit him again. But as he hit the deck, the beans flew in the air and magically fell into the scrubby garden. And with a whoosh and a crash, a giant beanstalk, 500 feet high, grew next to the tiny shack. And Jack's mother shook her head and thought, there goes my chance of selling this dump, and very wearily took another swig from her gin bottle. Now young Jack, being unemployed, had bugger all to do, and so he climbed up the giant stalk until finally he saw a massive castle. And being a complete thicko, he calmly walked in through the massive door where he saw a massive giant mumbling but counting gold. And Jack was a simple lad, and he thought, I'll simply have that away as soon as he pushes off. And then, as he sat down, he hid behind a five-foot fag end. And the hours passed until Jack heard the giant on the phone, arranging a session with his therapy group. It's okay to be hundreds of feet tall. And then, as soon as the giant left, Jack raced from his hiding place and grabbing the bag of gold, he began dragging it back towards the door. Now, Unluckily for Jack, the giant had forgotten his car keys, and as he stepped back inside, the first thing he saw was Jack, and the giant roared with laughter, especially as Jack looked like he was going to have a hernia trying to lift the gold. Fee, fi, fo, fum, he roared, his upper dentures suddenly slipping down and making normal speech temporarily impossible. And then the giant reached out to grab Jack, but he flew across the floor, scared something less, and now breaking the Olympic coward's record, he scrambled back down the beanstalk, back to safety and back to his mother. Now far below, Jack's mother was smashed out of her mind on cheap wine and arthritis tablets, and there she was trying out a new chainsaw she'd won in a local raffle, and the instant she saw her brave son being chased by a giant, she sprang into action. You useless pillock, she screamed, and swung at him with the chainsaw. But now used to this sort of thing, Jack ducked, and as she fell over, she sliced through the beanstalk, and the giant fell 400 feet and landed on their shack, flattening it completely, breaking his neck in the process. Jack's mother was very annoyed, but then he showed her the gold, and she instantly forgave him, and together they lived happily ever after. Until one day, Jack died suddenly after apparently falling onto a chainsaw in a mysterious DIY accident. And the moral is, mothers can bring anyone down to size. Now, I hope everyone's tucked up in bed for this is one of my favourite stories. Hansel and Gretel. Long, long ago, in a distant, far-off land, a poor farmer just couldn't afford to feed his two children. His wife had died and he'd married a right old cow, which meant not only was he a lousy judge of character, but the kids were in for a rough ride as well. Now everyone knows there's no such thing as a good stepmother, and this woman actually was a typical stereotype. 
Why not dump the kids in the woods, darling, she shrilled. And like a chump, he did. Now, in the dark forest, little Hansel and Gretel were very frightened, but they managed to find their way home about fifteen times, until the wicked stepmother stuck them with a really naff version of her sat-nav, and eventually they were lost and despairing in the deep, dark woods. On they wandered, deeper and deeper, until eventually they came across an amazing tiny cottage which seemed to be made of gingerbread and sweets. Hansel wondered if it had anything to do with those mushrooms they'd found and eaten earlier, and then he poked the house to see if it was real, and Gretel helped him by giggling and mumbling, what a rush, man, I'm completely out of my face. But, briskly knocking on the door, Hansel was suddenly not exactly surprised when an ugly old witch stuck her head out and cried, Come in, my dearies, come in. And now, taking her wild cackling in their stride, they tugged each other in and they'd finally stopped seeing tiny dancing hat stands. And now they went into the warm and cosy kitchen. Now, quite frankly, the witch was not only ugly, but she also had a slight weight problem which she was trying to fix with a new diet from Weight Watchers called the Baked Children Diet Calorie Control at its most surreal. But Hansel twigged this after the third attempt by the witch to get them to sit in the oven, which tells you a lot about his deductive ability. Gretel, however, was no dummy, and using simple logic and a vicious right hook, she shoved the witch into her own oven, where presumably she pegged it. And now rejoicing, they ate the entire gingerbread house, sugar windows and all, and after a viciously bad bout of gastroenteritis, they happily returned home. Now, after listening to their amazing tale, the overjoyed father made a mental note to remember where they'd found those mushrooms, and then announced he'd got rid of their stepmother at a love-in and car boot sale. Hansel and Gretel were overjoyed, and laughing with delight, they showed their father some gold and jewels they'd found in the witch's house, which meant they could all live happily ever after, blah, 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 blah. And the moral is, some families are just too bizarre for words. So, if you're still sitting comfortably, it's one of my personal favourites, because there's a very good ending. And the story is Rumple Stiltskin. Once upon a time, a king, for no apparent reason, summoned before him a miller. That's what they do in these stories. Now, this guy was some real schmuck, because on some zany impulse, he told the king that his young daughter could spin gold from straw. What a loser. Well, this idiot, king, stuck the girl in a tower in his castle and said, get spinning gold or I'll cut your head off. And now, pausing to pat the spinning wheel, he left the distraught child to it. This is fairyland, right? Anyway, the king had no sooner shut the door when in a puff of smoke, a little hunch guy appeared and he smiled at the girl. Give me all your jewellery, baby, and I'll turn all this straw into gold. And the girl was stunned and thought, great, some crazy guy, just what I need. But still, she gave him her necklace and with a blur of speed and a puff of smoke, he spun the wheel and whammo, instant gold from straw. And this 
went on for days. The girl would cry, the guy would appear, she'd hand over some goodies, and the straw would get spun into gold. Now the king, who had a degree in economics, and he knew a good thing when he saw it, then decided to marry the girl, who was in fact drop-dead gorgeous. But what he didn't know was because of a lack of tradable commodities, the girl had promised the little guy her first-born male child. And she was none too pleased with the arrangement, but figured the king was an old geezer who couldn't get up anyway, so there wouldn't be a problem. But sadly for her, the king turned out to be a sexual dynamo, and in no time at all, she gave birth to the first of 25 children. And as expected, the little guy appeared, and as soon as she saw him, she heard him say, OK, time to hand over the kid, that's the deal. Now the queen as she was regally spoke, up yours, shorty, and the little guy said, I thought you'd say this, here's the deal then. You tell me my name, you keep the brat. Yep, you got four days. And with a puff of smoke, he disappeared. Now the queen sent her fastest horsemen to the four corners of the kingdom, but they couldn't find out a thing, and the deadline grew nearer and nearer. And just as she was about to give up hope, the captain of her guard galloped into the courtyard, and racing to her side, he told her the amazing news. It seemed one of the town guards had been on patrol and had seen the little guy in a bar shouting and singing his name out loud. And so the next day, as she sat regally on her golden throne, the little hunched guy appeared in his obligatory puff of smoke and pixie dust. Then he held his hands out for the baby and now she stood tall and with a sweet smile and a razor blade that would have burnt the varnish of a table, she hissed, Wait a minute, you. Is your name Rumpelstiltskin? And the little guy looked shocked for a moment, and then he smiled. No, that's my drunken twin brother. My name's Chico. And grabbing the baby, he disappeared in a flash. Moral. Don't believe all you hear. Always check Wikipedia, Teletext or News24. So everyone, this is a story from a long time ago called The Emperor and the Nightingale. Once upon a time, in far off Japan, there lived a great emperor. Now this guy had it all and wasn't easily impressed, and as a result was always looking for new thrills. One evening he heard a nightingale singing and was so struck by the beauty of its song he demanded it sing for him in his courtyard, patio or brunch area. And the nightingale thought, well, a gig's a gig, and it duly turned up and sang for the emperor week upon week upon week. Now the emperor was dead impressed and he issued a proclamation saying the song of the nightingale was for him alone. And when the nightingale heard of this, she flew deep into the green wood, saying, My song's for everyone, rich or poor. Besides, I'm never going to get a record deal like this. Well, you can imagine the emperor was furious, and then he issued another proclamation saying, Forget the last one. Now time passed until one day another great emperor, also general manager Hunzai Electric Corps, sent him a gift. And it was, in fact, a mechanical nightingale with MP3s and NICAM digital stereo, and it sang very sweetly and also had email. 
and the emperor and his courtiers were blown away by the mechanical nightingale and soon forgot how nice the real one had been. But then the emperor issued another proclamation and his subjects thought, oh God, not another bloody proclamation. But being a patient lot, they read it anyway. And they said the new mechanical nightingale was to be the emperor's new personal music system. And then many months passed as the emperor listened to its songs and grooved to its beat. And back at his palace, come industrial estate, the other emperor was doing a roaring trade in mechanical nightingales, as used by emperors everywhere, and was thinking of going public, but that's another story. Anyway, one day back at the other emperor's palace, the mechanical nightingale suddenly packed up in the middle of a song, and the emperor was completely fed up and depressed. And that night, he lay in his bed, and like in all magical kingdoms, overdramatically, death came calling. Now look, I agree, because your stereo goes up the creek, dying's a bit much, but the emperor was a real ancient guy and a right old ham. But just as death was about to carry him off, the real nightingale came back and sang so sweetly that death pushed off. He was more into house and jungle and ballads making puke. Anyway, the emperor was overjoyed and he said thank you and the nightingale sang to him until morning and everything was cool and groovy. And the moral is, if you buy anything Japanese, get a guarantee. Now it's very dark now in Fairyland and soon I have to go. But before I do, listen to the story of the princess and the swineherd. Once upon a time there was a prince who was very lonely and he wanted a princess. And so he decided to dress up as a swineherd? Yeah, I know, sounds stupid to me either. But anyway, this guy was so desperate he'd even joined Dateline. Anyway, he had worked out that if a princess fancied him as a common swineherd, then she'd absolutely flip for him as a prince. Yeah, I don't know, but keep up. Now, at this point, it was pretty clear that the idiot didn't have a clue about women, and especially princesses, as common swineherds weren't exactly ideal companions to, say, an Oscar award ceremony or Wimbledon. But, bizarrely determined to press ahead with his daft plan, the prince now sat himself in a pigsty and waited for a princess to notice him. I mean, what a jerk. Now, look, I confess, like you, I don't believe the next bit, but indeed, a princess did come by and she did notice him. A bit of background on this woman might help, as just so you know. Rich, privileged, titled, snooty, obsessed with fantasies about big, sweaty, working men, ripping off her... Okay, you've got the picture. Anyway, she saw the prince slash swineherd playing with a little toy he'd made, and she asked him for it, and he laughed and said he didn't want her money, but he would exchange it for a hundred kisses. And the princess was horrified and said, kiss a common swineherd for a toy, but then in a microsecond said, okay. And the ladies in waiting sighed. They hadn't forgotten about that last time with the two plumbers, but he'd been hushed up, so they pretended it had never happened. And so the princess kissed the prince, and soon was visiting the pigsty twice a day, entertainment in the kingdom being obviously a bit thin on the ground. And so it was that each time the princess wanted a toy the prince swineherd had made, he demanded kisses, which, like a gentle and lovely princess, she gave serenely 
and with a passion that often left him unable to stand up for two days at a time. Now eventually, news of these goings-on reached the ears of the king himself. I don't know how. And he went down the pigsty to see for himself. Now he bought a ticket from the booth, private enterprise being very much encouraged in the kingdom, and then went inside. And the sight that greeted his eyes was just too much for the old guy. You out of my kingdom, he screamed, imagining the next day's headlines, Royal Lust in the Dust, picture exclusive. And now, as a result of this, the princess and the prince swineherd soon found themselves out of work on the edge of town and sobbing the princess cried and said, Now look, I'm alone with no money and no prince. But the prince laughed and nipping behind a tree, he stuck his prince's gear back on and then she gasped and said, Oh, don't ponce around, I'm not in a mood for you. And the prince said, No, no, darling, I'm a real prince. But judging by your horrible ways, I don't want to hang around with you anyway. With that, he held an Uber and left. Now later, he did return and shack up with her, as not only was she gorgeous, but after session with her, his entire body turned into one big orgasm. However, the moral is, if you find a princess who goes like a train, for God's sake, hang on to her. Now, lots of people have asked me for this particular story. And so, here it is. It is The Ugly Duckling. Once upon a time, a long time ago, amongst the reeds of a silver lake, some eggs hatched in a tiny nest, and the fluffy little chicks bobbed happily about on the clear surface of the water while the parents looked on. And now, one of their eggs took a bit longer to hatch, and when it did, the ugliest little bird crawled out. And all the other birds laughed and shouted, What an ugly duckling! And the poor little mite hid his face and fled. Well, by now it's clear to all of us the other birds were a bunch of insensitive swine who probably looked good with some sweet and sour sauce. But like it or not, they were right. The bird was indeed bloody ugly. And time passed, and the little ugly duckling asked all the other birds if they knew what kind of bird he was. But sadly, none of them had an answer for him. And months passed, and he became very lonely. As not only was he ugly, he was also totally socially inept. If you met him at a party or in a wine bar, he'd never think of anything to say. And then after a few minutes' chit-chat, he'd wander off talking something about the weather. But anyway, winter came, and so the ugly duckling sat in his cheap rented accommodation, wishing he knew what kind of bird he was and flicking through the observer's book of birds. And each day he would pass and he would stare into his mirror, wondering if he was a flamingo or perhaps a peacock. But he knew that was unlikely as he wasn't pink and he didn't have a great big coloured tail. He might have been ugly, but he wasn't stupid. And soon he gave up on his quest and he realised he wasn't a lot of birds and he couldn't keep fooling himself even if he was drinking 15 pints of lager. But then, one bright morning, he heard a commotion on the lake, and looking out of the window, he saw a flight of swans sailing gloriously above the water. That was it, he thought. I'm a swan. I'm not an ugly duckling. I'm a swan. And hooting joyfully, he leapt into the air and flew towards them proudly. And one of the swans turned round and said, Bugger me, 
It's a pterodactyl, and all the other swans gawped and scattered in panic. And the little ugly duckling, who by now weighed over a ton and a half, suddenly realised who he was, and more importantly remembered he was in fact extinct. And with this unavoidable fact uppermost in his mind, he allowed his concentration to lapse and flew headfirst into an Airbus A30 that had just left Heathrow. And the moral is, self-knowledge can sometimes be a right drag. So that's all from me there is today, girls and boys. So until next time, when you can join me and listen to Uncle Phil's slightly altered fairy stories. Good night. I couldn't resist writing those. I loved those stories when I was a kid. And of course, they weren't quite like that. But I thought I'd just upgrade them for our modern times. Anyway, on we go. It's the second story. And it's a bit of a, I say sci-fi. I don't really quite know how to categorise this story. But all I can tell you is that it's going to hopefully stun you come the ending. Or you're going to try and figure out what's going on. Anyway, the story's called The Deep. The captain pressed the boat's tannoy button, his voice calm and measured. The red alert klaxon had shut off some ten minutes ago and the XO had confirmed all departments functioning. Damage control reporting, everything is clear. All systems showing normal on the control panel. The computers indicating all was green. And now the crew on the control deck sat more easily, their young faces now more relaxed, and he saw their smiles and relaxing. The emergency combat lightning flicked back to normal. This had been no training exercise. This had been the real thing. Was it the Russians, the Chinese? All the captain knew was one thing, and that was they'd nearly hit an unidentified object. So deep, something very big had moved past them, and every warning system had gone off, Smart sensors pinging, crash dive being the only answer. And he'd sent the huge submarine almost straight down, his steering team doing an amazing job, precise and in control at all times, their training kicking in. The boat had shuddered briefly, a sudden tremble that had quickly stopped. It was unusual, but not unexpected. Fast and deep dive, and this type of manoeuvre wasn't without risks. He looked at the screen. The Virginia class was a state-of-the-art submarine, the flagship, pride of the Navy, a Block 6, the newest and sleekest design, with all the latest technology on board, much of it still classified. He remembered the specs from his earlier training. It was 114 metres long, it weighed in 700 tonnes, and in truth, it was just a weapon, a weapon that could end the world. Rumours said they could go as deep as 490 metres, and the captain grinned. America, the best, and his crew had performed perfectly. He'd congratulate them later. If he was honest, it was a textbook manoeuvre. They levelled out exactly on his mark, his boat now deeper than he'd ever taken her. Real deep, the exo had said, checking the gauges, and the captain had nodded. She could take it, he knew it. Her construction was fully trusted and proven. And if there's one thing he knew was his boat. She was really well built, fully maintained, systems all in place. 
He thought back to his early days. He'd been top in his class at the academy, finishing the final year with three commendations. And now he was in eight years, looking now at his team, the head, the captain. He looked at the other officers, the tactical and weapons guys. No, no threats, captain. They're highly sensitive systems operating at full sweep. Nothing, they said. They were safe, intact, operating at full capability. And he suddenly felt his shoulders relax. Good, good, that was good. He thought about his years in the service, his years of service to his country, the constant game of cat and mouse being carried out as long as he could remember. It was a war with no war, way deep down in the depths of the oceans, them and us, like a shadow boxing tournament. The EXO had once called it sea chess, and he'd laughed because the man had summed up exactly what they did, hide and seek on a grand scale. He called for a coffee and looked at the clock. It was around four in the afternoon topside, but around them, the Pacific Ocean stretched away in all directions, the darkness total, the water freezing cold. No sunlight could reach down this far, and the inky blackness now lit on their screens by the powerful new and undetectable infrared lighting rig. But somewhere out there, in the darkness he felt, was that other submarine, probably with a man just like him in a similar control room trying to figure out what the hell had just happened. It had always been an uneasy game, and he'd been involved for years. His dad had been in the service, his brother too, both now long since retired. Dad in a home, Brad in real estate in Florida, and they specialised in relaxing and joked with him. He couldn't retire. He knew his promotion was coming. And as he sat, the control deck felt warm, he glanced at a picture, Junie. She'd been really pleased, the kids as well. He told them he'd finally be shoreside, close to home, ready to start a new chapter of their lives together. And he'd asked for it, because it had only been right, he thought, for the family, the promotion, the extra money, the office job. He'd miss this. He knew he would. He couldn't really describe the feeling, the power, the buzz. This was his boat. His boat. The alarms were off and everything returned back to normal. And now 15 minutes passed and he sat in his chair sipping his coffee. Until the intercom buzzed, Menendez in the engine bay. He'd seen something and now he'd called the control deck. He stared at the screen, the EXO and operations officer now beside him. The ship was fully kitted, cameras both inside and out, state of the art. And now on the screen in front of them, was something impossible. It was a fish, around three feet long, transparent apparently, glowing blue and silent, seemingly swimming through the air, around five feet from the floor. Menendez laughed. What the fuck, Cap? And then three more followed it, appearing from the left bulkhead. The boat was at stop. Effectively, they were hanging motionlessly at about their deepest capability. And the ship was good. She'd held firm. And every sensor, and there were millions of them, told him the boat was sound and in no danger. But now this. Menendez looked transfixed. What, what shall I do, Cap? 
And now Wazanski and Travis had appeared, the second shift engine room guys. And they all glared as crowding around them a large shoal of red, insubstantial fish, iridescent, now appeared to swim straight through the bulkhead. The XO whispered in his ear, Captain, you can see through them. It's, look, they're, they're not real. And before anyone could tell them, Travis reached up and lifted his hand and he dragged his outstretched finger right through one of the fish. It wasn't there, not physically at least, and they could all see it. Wazanski let out a yelp and a huge green fish had swum right through him. And behind him, now lengthwise and travelling straight up the corridor, was a thing with hundreds of fronds. It was the size of a man and they all ducked as it swished above their heads and they all looked back at the camera and they grinned. Captain, this is just freaky. The XO laughed, typical Travis, their boy from Texas. And the captain touched the mic button. Now listen, boys, and listen good. Keep away from them, you hear me? I have no idea what's happening, but I'm on my way. Clear that section. I want all crew out of there. You, Menendez, sit tight and stay out of trouble. Next to him on the camera, the chief suddenly appeared, the boat's head engineer. And now he stared at a large green and yellow jellyfish, almost eight feet across, and it was clear as glass, and it hung around the air six feet in front of him. Jesus, he said, dragging off his baseball cap. You heard the captain, boys? Let's go. Come on, hustle, hustle. And now the XO stood, and followed by the captain, they quickly headed for the lift. The three men stood. It was unbelievable. There they were, in the lowest part of the pressurised part of the ship, the next level, the crew section. But now, all around them, swarms of ghostly fish moving back and forth, seemingly coming from everywhere, hundreds, possibly thousands, the air thick with them now. And they glowed brightly, many multicoloured, turning and drifting, lazily moving around. And the XO had pointed out, they're not like anything he'd ever seen, the species from who know where. And then the chief's familiar drawl came over the comms. Captain, I think you should hear this. Travis, go on now, son. And now young Travis's familiar Texas twang cut through the silence. Well, sir, it's like this. My kid brother has a lot of books. You know, with these critters in these fish, he's dinosaur crazy, sir. Being 12 and all, like those Jurassic Park films, you know. Now, he really loves the sharks and the fish and such and the megalodons or something like that. But, but he had these models, sir, you can buy and... Look, I know it sounds crazy, but we just check, sir, on the computer. And if I'm right, and I think I am, what we're looking at, sir, is fish. And I know it sounds crazy, but these things are ancient, extinct, millions of years old. The captain looked at his officers, and they looked back at each other. And suddenly, the compartment emptied. All the fish suddenly flashing away in a direction, quick, left and right, until the entire corridor was empty. It was the Exo who saw it first, a snout slowly appearing through the far wall, six feet long, ten feet long, sixteen feet long, massive and lined with teeth, viciously serrated, and slowly the huge creature filled the compartment, big and wide, its body so large it must have been mostly outside the boat. And the men now actually stared as its mouth opened and went through them all, invisible, empty, insubstantial. They froze. 
It was so long it took three minutes to finally clear until the captain looked at his team. They all looked very unsettled. Um, let's get out of this now, gentlemen. And very quickly, they scrambled out and back up into the lift section and made their way to the safety of the control deck. The men worked quietly. The control room now quiet but humming with work. Chatter low. The cameras were still recording. Three more areas now reported as filling with the ghostly shoals. The crew now told to avoid contact if possible. And now the tactical officer had been reviewing the earlier incident. He said the reason for their intense dive vector was something huge, maybe one of these fish, flashing past the cameras. But he couldn't see it what it was. The image was too blurry. But it didn't seem like an animal vessel, Cap, he said. Its speed was way too fast. The whole thing a mystery. Maybe, maybe it was a whale. They'd encountered them before. But at that depth, he said it seemed unlikely. Plus, maybe there'd have been sonar and audio. But in this case, there'd been nothing, just the alarm. The captain looked at his men. The only time they broke surface was at a mission's end or during specific planning times. This was not that. But then another hour passed. Nothing. That wasn't unusual. But these fish, this was unlike anything he'd seen. Hmm. Maybe he could let the boys in fleet worry about it. His boat had to carry on. They still had their mission. The men would go about their duties. But now he knew that most of the upper level compartments were now full of these ghostly shoals. And the day passed. He sent a boy up. No communications. That was unusually felt. Their course always preset. But now things had changed. This, this was maybe a good reason to contact base. For now, virtually every part of his boat was a living ocean scene, plants now appearing, waving thick green fronds, see-through, insubstantial, moving to some long-since vanished current and eddies. And he looked at his exo, Billy Foreman. He was a brilliant guy, another top-class winner. Soon he'd be vying for his own command. It was how the Navy worked. And then he remembered his first captain, Captain Hiro Atashi. What an amazing guy, he thought. More like a father, really. His men had loved him. Hard and fair, they said. He was, but also an inspirational leader. The chief knocked on his ready room door. Coffee cap? He held his mug. Ah, oh, thanks, chief. What a day. He looked at the other men. Look, guys, I'm not going to beat around the bush. This is outside even my pay grade. We've contacted fleet and so far nothing. He reached into a drawer in his desk and pulled out a navy manual. Shiny pages held together with aluminium folder clips. Boys, I've looked in here and we're going to execute order 319 Alpha. Yup. Listen and listen good. A captain may break mission silence and surface if he believes his vessel is in any form of danger. However, he must have three flag rating officers approval to do so. He glanced up. Do I have your approval, gentlemen? Dave, the operations officer, held his thumb up and the others copied him. Good, good. We're all agreed then. Okay. Okay, EXO, tactical operations chief. Good to go. We're all on the same page. Brilliant. They stood up, clumsily saluting, and he slurped his coffee noisily and they laughed. <sighs> Colombian blend boys. Let's make it happen. Let's take us up. See the surface. The engine turbines had kicked in 
and he could feel them thrumming beneath his feet. As all around him, the control room fell quiet. All contact systems deployed, full sonar, full radar, Captain. It was strange. He looked at the screens. They were completely alone. In the Pacific Ocean, there was nothing around them or above them. He knew the boat, his technology. It was state-of-the-art stuff. Until finally the surface alarm rang twice and the lighting slowly changed. He could feel it now in his legs, the surface getting closer, the familiar slight change of pressure. And slowly and methodically, the men took the boat up, all strictly under control, everyone highly focused. He looked across at the screens. He could see the depth changing, slow but steady. Good, good, he said. Standard stuff, Chief, standard stuff. And then the Chief reported that men downstairs had said the ghost fish were gone. Every department now clear. Well, that was a start, Chief, yeah? Now maybe we could work out what the hell was going on. Until finally, the boat broke the surface. Crewmen moving around him, slowly preparing more equipment. The chief now watched as the captain moved to the conning tower ladder area, clipping himself onto his safety harness. And then, almost effortlessly, he tugged himself upwards, his hours in the gym showing his arms broad and strong. The exo had gone already up before him, and as he got outside it hit him instantly, as soon as he stepped from the hatch into the open sea breeze. That smell, the air, it was strange, it was sweet, it was different, cleaner almost. He raised his binoculars and gazed around him, the vast empty sea, bright and sparkling with sunshine. The soft breeze, though strange, now brushing his face. And he closed his eyes, briefly lifting his face sunwards. Suddenly the XO tapped his shoulder and sharply pointed upwards. He raised his binoculars and then took them down again. It was impossible. Around 60 feet above him, three huge shadowy-looking birds flapped enormous leathery wings, lazily spiralling upwards and down. They weren't birds, he thought. He lifted his binoculars again, holding his breath. Christ! They were pterodactyls. It was impossible. It... <sighs> It couldn't make sense. It couldn't be real. And now a huge flock of them appeared, whirling in a circle. And then something else caught his eye. Higher still, just breaking through the high grey cloud cover. Four huge meteorites heading downwards, vast, grey, on fire, their distant roar becoming louder and louder, flaming tails blazing for miles behind them, his mind now full of Junie and the kids. Imagine being that poor captain, huh? Anyway, freaky. Well, that's what I like to think. Anyway, back to my little bit. At this point, every podcast, I talk about the writing journey sometimes. That's the word I use in some of my actual teach people to write videos which you run on TikTok. So if you're a TikTok user, whiz over and see what the Story Hive is trying to tell you to do. And what it's trying to tell you to do is to write and have a really good time. So today's exercise is a really strange one. Write a letter to your younger self. 
Sounds really strange, but it's great fun. Because think of yourself, I'm going to pick an age, age 12, what you are thinking, what you're feeling. And now you know what you know now. Imagine what you would say to yourself about what's going to come, get ready, and all the advice you'd give to your 12-year-old self. And for fun, you can even post it to yourself. That sounds a bit weird, but I have to tell you, it's a really lovely thing. Anyway, enough of that. It's time for that final story. Today's final story is from The Crime Files, and it's pretty dark, but it's not that dark, and it's called The Clever Boy. But it has kind of got rude illusions and things in, but they're really necessary for the story. But don't worry, there's nothing graphic or terrible. In fact, if it is, it's in your imagination, which is kind of the job of a writer, I guess. Anyway, it's The Clever Boy. Now, I've often read highly complex psychiatric papers on what makes a criminal. And the factors are both external and internal and often follow quite unique patterns. But the one clear point is always, for me anyway, which level of criminal am I dealing with? You see, once I know that, I can tailor my approach. Now, the reasons for criminality, they don't really concern me. My job is to catch them, stop their criminal activity and protect the public. But you know, sometimes people do surprise you. So this story I call The Clever Boy. You've probably read about how these drug gangs utilise couriers to move their illegal substances around, to generally evade the police. And nowadays, and I'm sad to say it, they very often use youngsters. Stupid, impressionable, sometimes complicit, but other times not. Remember, gangs threaten perfectly innocent kids into working for them. Now, I'm going to confess right up front to a visceral hatred of drug gangs. They're like a cancer at the heart of many communities. They're just a toxic presence and, in my opinion, need to be surgically removed. Now, this story is from a small town outside of Marseille and I got called in by an old colleague. See, he said one such community was slowly being poisoned by these bloody horrible drug people. Two extreme lowlifes had effectively set up shop, come out of nowhere, and now they were recruiting and or forcing local kids into their filthy enterprise. Now let's just take one kid and let's call him Jean-Paul. Now he was snared by them and he was of great use apparently because although he was actually 12 years old, he was a very slight a build little lad, small in stature, and he could easily pass for about nine. See, therefore, he was seen as above suspicion if he was ever seen on the streets. Now, the French have a social housing system called habituation à loyer modère, and it means roughly affordable rental housing, which is dedicated to housing the lower social classes and the lower paid employees of local businesses. So all in all, not a lovely place. Now, the original report placed our young Jean-Paul as living in one such of these buildings with his mum, the father vanishing long before he was born. And the area consisted of a series of these grey, crumbling, run-down blocks near a large road system. Rough doesn't even come close to the kind of conditions in these places. And so, young Jean-Paul, who lived with his now single mother, was forced to start his young life fighting from the very beginning. 
He was a good student, tragically in a way, given his circumstances, and his school reports said he was an above average, a great writer of stories, a keen member of the acting class, huge talent for filmmaking even, and sharp-witted. But not, however, that that is going to make any difference, they thought. They got an expression round his way. Born in concrete, dying concrete. It's a bit grim, but it's sadly a fact. However, our two lowlifes, our little drug dealers, in this particular story, were small fry, really, but nonetheless vicious, just middle-ranking types. I'm going to call them Mr A and Mr B, or it could be Monsieur, but just let's leave it at that, right? Now, Mr A had recently lost a young courier, now in the custody of the French youth detention system, so he needed a new set of delivery wheels. Young boys and girls on bikes, the best way to avoid the police, or les flics. And somehow young Jean-Paul caught his eye, and with the early promise of easy cash or broken legs, the poor kid didn't have much of a choice. These scumbags are always making good in their violent threats. So now there he was, dressed in a much younger outfit than his own age, carrying a pink unicorn backpack, beginning to ferry dope and tablets and pornography all around the area for our charming Mr A. As if the kid's life wasn't bad enough, he then came to the attention of Mr B, our other scumbag, who sent a thug to threaten him as well. And so now the poor little sod found himself working for both of them. Now the early report mentions the occasional turf war between these two scumbags, fights, threats, but in the main they left each other alone, both figuring there was enough customers to go round. But this is where the story changes a bit, because now enter our third player, Mr C, much bigger fish, who calculated he can control all of the territory with these two idiots, arriving with even nastier accomplices. And so he began squeezing both Mr A and Mr B, who amazingly decided to join forces to face this new threat to their livelihoods and business. So, a lot of new violence and criminality began in the area, much more than before, and that brought it to the attention of a special police bureau, now, this secret arm of the French gendarmerie are in fact so secret that very few people know about them. But somehow, incredibly, our little Jean-Paul stumbled across one of their vans one late summer evening. They'd obviously let their guard down, there were two operatives, and they'd left a window open in one of those stifling summer hot days. One of their radios went off, and that's what brought them to the attention of the keen ears of our young Jean-Paul drug courier. Since Mr C's arrival, the use of these youngsters had risen, many more being drafted in, and terribly, once again, a different scumbag belonging to Mr C spotted our young Jean-Paul. Yup, he was conscripted into his organisation, the poor little sod now being run absolute ragged, cycling left and right and centre. Apparently, he rushed home, he'd do his schoolwork, eat his tea, and spend the rest of the time throwing illegal products around the area. Now, like many of his fellow couriers, he'd long accepted his role in life as being one of the weak and vulnerable and exploited, one with no choice. It was just how it was in those estates. And that's a depressing thought, I know. But now our young Jean-Paul, he'd become intrigued 
because he's heard that radio from the special police bureau blokes and he wanted to know a bit more about it. So he started following their van and soon he learnt of other vans and cars and all of which of this he apparently noted carefully down. Now he did get paid by these scumbags and his hard work and still very low unpaid jobs had however tripled and so now because he was quite cute to look at being a little tiny thing giving tips and stuff he soon started to gather a good sum of money. Now what he did with this was he turned it into quite an impressive array of equipment, computers and cameras and the like, that being his one true passion. And according to his mother, the latest statement anyway, he explained to the people that sold it to him he was getting it for his big brother. <laughs> A big brother he didn't even have. Now, the various criminal factions had a familiar pattern. They all do. Bars, clubs, dealers were recruited, word went round and people could be certain, wherever they were, of a regular supply of whatever their particular delight was. Be it drugs, guns, knives, porn, you name it, it got delivered. And so, the kiddie delivery service kept every establishment and dealer supplied with whatever goods they asked for. They collected the money and returned it to their base or drop-off points. Now, I have to say, all in all, it was a highly elaborate and very well thought out operation, even if it was run by scumbags. And our young Jean-Paul had quickly identified another series of things. He knew all the clubs and bars and the dealers. He knew all the drop-off points. He knew at the pick-up points. And now, from the three misters, Mr. A, B and C, he soon learned of their rivalry and he discussed it regularly with his fellow couriers, many of whom he went to school with. Well, of course, they're all terrified. And as I mentioned before, they just accepted their lot in life. What could they do? They were the lowest of the low, the weak and the powerless. Tragic. Now, as I already mentioned, although young Jean-Paul was in fact 12, he looked nine, and he now found himself actually meeting nine-year-olds doing other deliveries. Yep, that's correct. I'm not making it up. It shows the depths that these three scumbags were happy to sink to. Little vulnerable nine-year-olds. Instead of being kids and happily planned in innocence, they'd now been snared by the three drug gangs. Little girls and boys Jean-Paul often played with at school in the plays and the pageants. <sighs> I tell you, these poor little things were living in terror. And I can't tell you how much that part of the report made my blood boil. Now, according to the reports, the three misters all had their hangouts, the places they frequented, bars and clubs, none of which they owned, but they still terrorised them. And soon it came to young Jean-Paul's attention that all three men liked saunas. And he found this out by the simple expediency of them calling him to these places to pick up deliveries from him or give him money. He'd go inside, meet the contact, but sometimes he had to enter the sauna and often he saw his new naked lords disporting themselves, being pleasured by young women and often they'd expose themselves to the kid with their engorged parts. I mean, his life had struck rock bottom. It was appalling. But the report mentioned at that point that the special bureau was now becoming more highly active and they'd occasionally pick one off, one of the more stupid crime gang members. But I'm sad to say it made absolutely no difference 
to poor little Jean-Paul's life. And the months went on, and life on the estate remained the same, exactly the same. But now Jean-Paul's mother started suffering from very bad asthma, conditions she'd had as a child. And however, despite all her requests, the authorities couldn't or wouldn't move her from their tiny flat on the estate. And so Jean-Paul's days were now very much set in a fine balance between schoolwork, which amazingly he continued to thrive at, and zooming around the area on his various delivery rounds. One very depressing aspect to all law, French law included, is that to successfully prosecute, in say this case, a drug dealer, you need pretty compelling evidence to catch them and put them in prison. You see, like all drug bosses, the three misters never touched or even received the stuff themselves. They always organised a delivery from their supplier, always to a go-between, you know, small fry criminals, happy to be part of the team, get a little cut to quid in. And the much larger crime gangs, they employed dozens of these sorts. And crucially, it never came into contact with the big bosses themselves. They always used these trusted lieutenants and operatives to do everything. And because of this, it made it and still makes it practically impossible to ever pin anything onto any of them. Even the cleverest and sharpest lawyers just couldn't get to them. The evidence is always three times removed, you know, others taking the rap every single time. And that was, in this case, until the tip-off to the special bureau guys. I read the sealed file. And I tell you, when the case did come to court, it was behind closed doors. Such was its severity. The apparent shocking nature of it, it was just seen as too much for public consumption. The special bureau, it seemed, had received a tip-off from an anonymous source in the form of a series of memory sticks. And they contained such explicit pornographic footage, it was actually sealed by order of a judge. Now, I watched some of that footage myself and I listened to the children's testimony in all the other film statements and it was sickening to hear. But one part of it when I watched it slightly bugged me. So I eventually took my copy to a highly specialist film editor. He's a forensic sort of bloke. And once he'd seen it, I filed his report away. Now back to the case, because the court had watched as individually the three misters, Mr A, B and C, they were now shown having sexual congress with a series of very young children, including little Jean-Paul. You could see their anguished faces and howls and it made your stomach churn. And the events had appeared to be filmed in a sauna of some kind. The camera sometimes steaming the lens up occasionally. But you kept seeing close-ups of the three naked misters, their engorged genitals and laughing faces in horrible sharp focus. Then the wriggling children, back to their laughing, screaming faces. It was horrible. Now, the senior magistrate and judge threw the book at them. Their fancy lawyers, none keen now to be seen defending paedophiles, that not very good for their long-term careers. Now, of course, the three misters protested their innocence. I mean, why wouldn't they? And then the senior magistrate and the judge said it was shameful, given what the court had actually seen. 
Now after that, gloves were off and the special bureau went on a complete offensive. They were armed with all the other helpful information on the fourth memory stick and they rounded up every single member of every single drug gang, every bar, every club owner and their colleagues too. And none of that lot were keen to be associated with child pornography or paedophiles, all suddenly happy to say, yeah, yeah, their bosses, their suppliers were child rapists. It was appalling. But they all knew it carried the highest prison sentence next to murder, especially in France. And it was guilt by association that was their main concern. And of course, the second one, saving their own miserable skins. Well... Needless to say, the three misters would never see the sunshine for rather a long time. A lifetime, in fact. And plus, paedophiles are not very popular in prisons either. And that was going to slightly add to their difficulty. Happily, there was a bright side, I suppose. And that was the authorities who moved all the effective children into a protection programme. It found them and their families much nicer living accommodation, moved them out the area, obviously due to the terrible nature of their suffering. Then the case was closed. And of course, my private files received another sealed folder. But there was one slight anomaly. And that was my interview with Jean-Paul's mother. And in it, she talked so movingly of her love for her son, how proud she was, him getting through the terrible ordeal so very well his dedication to his schoolwork and his studying, making such a noise sometimes with a screaming and shouting, young Jean-Paul and his little friends, practising their play-acting in his room and even the bathroom, sometimes even steaming up half the flat, which made her laugh so prettily, I thought, as only a truly loving and adoring mother can. And then finally she talked of his amazing skills he had on the computer, mainly filming and editing. My private file remained sealed, including my friend the film editor's report. Now a crime was committed. That's all completely clear. All the evidence points to it. But by who exactly? Well, that's it for today. End of the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for actually being part of the Story High family. Do share with your friends and family. Please give out messages to us on social media just say hi keep going whatever you think of us it's just nice to hear from people and we do i have to say get a lot of lovely messages please don't send dark or terrible ones because i've got a story that i'm writing now called the troll and it's basically about a guy that just writes horrible things to people and a horrible thing happens to him at the end Anyway, enough of that. It is time to say goodbye with my normal goodbye, which is I hope the world. And today is I hope the world brings you really, really good news. Bye now. <laughs>